again, Freethinkers, and welcome back to the Freethought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Freethought Project Editor-in-Chief, Matt Agarist. I hope everyone out there is doing well, and thanks again for joining us today, guys. Our podcast today is its extremely relevant, it's extremely important, and you know why, you ask? Well, because it surrounds an issue that was once considered a conspiracy theory, but as you will hear during this next hour, it's far from a theory, but a fact that the substance known as fluoride, you know, that same stuff that they put in our toothpaste and also water in many cities throughout the country, yeah, that stuff, well, it's actually a neurotoxin that has detrimental health effects, including a loss of IQ when given to young children and babies. Now, our guest today is someone who has dedicated himself to knowing all the ins and outs of this topic and has been following the lawsuit trial we talk about today for eight years. Well, our guest needs no introduction, as I'm sure most of our listeners know his work already. Derek Bros has been on the front lines of this topic, and the information we get into today is nothing short of astounding especially when you consider how hard it's been pushed on the public for decades as uh, healthy and creating strong, cavity-resistant teeth. Well, this episode debunks all of that, so strap yourself in, guys, put your critical thinking cap on, and let's get into our conversation with author, activist, and journalist Derek Bros. What's up, Mr. Bros? How you doing? Thanks again for joining us today. Doing great. Thanks for having me back, guys. For sure, man. Well, we have a lot to talk about today, but first off, I should probably mention right off the bat that just a couple of weeks ago, you were hosting a huge conference in Morelia, Mexico, entitled The Greater Reset 5. Uh, from what I could tell, it looked like it was a great turnout. Uh, You were kind enough to invite me to speak, of course, and uh, you had several of our previous podcast guests also speaking at the event. But uh, now you're in San Francisco just a couple short weeks later, uh, which, you know, really exemplifies what I've been saying for years, that you're one of the hardest working activists and journalists on the planet. And it's truly inspiring. You know, I I hope to hope maybe possibly come out to San Francisco before this is all over and uh, buy you lunch. Um, but you know, I should probably also mention you've been on the podcast at least twice before. The first time was in 2018 in our second ever episode, and we were talking about Epstein and the Pyramid of Power. And of course, this was you know before most people even knew who Epstein was, and uh, a year before the meme that we all know so well now, which is you know Epstein didn't kill himself. And more recently, we had you on again in December of 2022 to talk about Elon Musk and Kanye West and the uh, World Economic Forum. So definitely check out those podcasts, guys. Uh, they're in our archives. 
And, you know, you also wrote for us for a brief period of time when you're uh, with, you know, while the Free Thought Project was still writing consistently and profitable, but more recently, you've been writing for The Last American Vagabond, which, you know, is a, a phenomenal organization. Of course, you're still producing content for your own organization, The Conscious Resistance. And uh, as I mentioned, you're currently in San Francisco covering the second phase of the landmark fluoride lawsuit. And just, you know, some context here for our listeners. Um, this legal battle has been uh, eight years in the making between the EPA and the Fluoride Action Network. It began back in 2016. And, uh, you know, the Fluoride Action Network is attempting to prove that fluoride is this neurotoxin that should be banned under the Toxic Substance Control Act. And I know you've been out there for a while now. I think it's a little over a week, Derek, and you've conducted some very powerful interviews, and we'll definitely be talking about that. But a few days ago, we were talking, and you mentioned something that blew my mind. You told me that you had reached out to several large news outlets and podcasts uh, to alert them that you were covering this trial and you know you were available for interviews. And lo and behold, like not one of them took you up on this offer, which to me seems really strange because, you know, here at the Free Thought Project, we've been covering fluoride news and information for about a decade now. And without fail, nearly every single time we release information or memes about this topic, people always engage with it and they, they share it. It seems like a topic that a lot of people are aware of and, and concerned about. So I guess my first question is like, why do you suspect that you didn't get any bites when reaching out to all these large podcasts? And uh, why do you think other journalists wouldn't want to cover something that I believe is probably one of the largest stories currently happening right now? Yeah, I appreciate that setup. And, you know, I want to I'm not going to name any of the people I specifically reached out to or anything. It's not, you know, anything like that. Um, I, I wish the people were, were more, I guess, eager to cover this specific story. I know there's a lot of like the bigger your podcast gets, the more views, the busier you can get. And maybe you don't get to check emails all the time. So I try to uh, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt. But the reality is, as you mentioned, that this this case has been going on since 2016. The lawsuit started in 2017. The first phase was in 2020. I was one of the only people reporting on it following the daily uh, court proceedings then. And I've been on it since then. And here we are now one week into the second phase. And the only other journalist here in person is uh, Brenda uh, I can't remember her last name, excuse me. She's with Children's Health Defense. It's just her and I in the courtroom mm -hmm. and then some supporters. And I did reach out to some big podcasts, podcasts who I think would be interested in this topic and have maybe covered kind of tangential issues in the past. But I, I really, I'm going to put the blame on um, on the media itself, like the corporate media and maybe some of these forces that are that we could term the fluoride lobby, which was what one of the witnesses, Dr. Philippe Grandjean, referred to them as, um, for the reason for this ignorance, you know, because there's a lot going on in the world. There's always a lot going on in the world. There's Israel, there's other things. So I get that, like, it's a fight over, like, how much bandwidth do you have to cover how many stories and things like that. But the reason I think this is so powerful and so important, not only because this is the first time ever, as uh, lead attorney Michael Connett told me, this is the first time ever that a citizen petition through the Toxic Substance Control Act, which is called TOSCA, uh, has made it to a federal court. And not only that is that's interesting, that's powerful, but specifically a federal court where the evidence of fluoride is being presented for the first time in the almost 80 years that fluoride has been 
promoted as you know such a, a great practice. In fact, for those who don't know, the CDC still considers the practice of water fluoridation to be one of the top 10 public health achievements of the 20th century, along with vaccinations, of course. So this is it's a big thing to be in a federal court with a judge willing to hear the evidence and not just a judge willing to hear the evidence. You know, that would be one thing. And then we get in there and the judge is clearly biased towards the EPA or something. But in this case, definitely, I will say that Judge Edward Chen seems to be legitimately interested in the science and trying to understand it, you know, and, and mm-hmm. he's not just favoring the EPA. He's not just shutting down the Floyd Action Network. He's asking questions. He's trying to learn. And in fact, sometimes he has shut that down the government down. So, um, you know, this is it's a big thing that we're this far and that this data and all the information that is being presented is in court. And that is why the mainstream media wouldn't want you to hear about it, because you would think that if there was if we had, let's say, Tucker Carlson or or uh, Joe Rogan even mentioned this lawsuit in passing, there would be so much more intention on it, you know, or if um, uh, some of the bigger podcasts that are reaching 500,000 plus people every video and things like that were to to talk about it or to bring me on or just to even, again, mention it in passing, you would have so much eyes and so much more eyes and ears. The courtroom could be filled with journalists, both independent and corporate media and supporters. And I think that that does put some pressure, for better or worse, on the judge and on this whole situation. But instead, the fluoride lobby would prefer that this case sort of goes under the radar. And of course, they're hoping that it, it lands in their favor. No doubt, man. I think one of the main reasons that these mainstream media and like larger people like kind of avoid it like the plague is that it's had such a stigma with it for so long. You know, if you mentioned fluoride in 2006, like when I started reading about the effects of fluoride in the water and started filtering, you know, the water for my family and everything, it was a long time ago. And I try to tell everybody about it. I was like, man, the, the, the you go read some of the studies and the Fluoride Action Network actually provided a lot of that information for me like props to them for doing that they've been they've been there yeah. like they're the og of this and i've been putting out that information for a very long time but i was trying to talk to family members about it and they like they they ridiculed me you know they laughed at me and this just shows that how you know how far that this has come that it's now in a federal court and the epa is being sued like this is fucking it should just i just got goosebumps saying that you know that this is going that far and you know, I, I know that like a lot of the the, the studies that you guys are present that you guys that the Fluoride Action Network is presenting there is uh, has to do with with the effects of children and prenatal exposure to fluoride. But like all those side effects and and all the horrific shit aside that we know about, you know, fluoride and all these studies have proven the fact that the state is medicating people against their will that should be at the top of everyone's list, like. Who gives a shit? I mean, I all obviously we all give a shit about the the har- the harmful effects of the fluoride, but like this is an instance in where the state is medicating people against their will. You would think that that being challenged would have drawn out everybody, you know, every media outlet out there because this is that's such a huge deal. And uh, I, I, so that was my perspective on why the media, you know, is 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 kind of ignoring it and stuff. Why I know that you reached out to the podcast and stuff, but why do you think the mainstream media is kind of just uh, you know, not even taking a look at it. Well, I think that you make a great point there, Matt, that, um, you know, even so the, I should clarify that the lawsuit under Tosca is specifically focused on trying to prove whether or not water fluoridation at the currently allowable levels of 0.7 milligrams per liter is 
a neurotoxin um, and is causing cognitive function uh, issues, neurodevelopmental issues, specifically lowering IQ in children. So that's kind of like the narrow focus of this lawsuit. But as you mentioned, there's other health problems. There's there's uh, thyroid issues we can get into. One of the witnesses touched on. There's um, bone issues. There's kidney. There's liver. There's the pineal gland. There's so many different ways that fluoride, this toxin, is affecting our bodies. And that's not even you know even if you set aside all those arguments about health and uh, the impacts of that, like you said, Matt, it also is this whole other discussion around um, bodily autonomy. And this is the only thing that is added to the water specifically for medical reasons. You know, it's one thing to like add uh, chlorine and other stuff, which is still problematic for allegedly for like cleaning, um, you know, the cleaning the pipes and there's all kinds of other stuff. But fluoride is the only thing that is, has a medically per medical purpose, we're told. And not on only that, but on top of that, like you are as taxpayers in the US, if you are paying your taxes uh, or even if you're paying the water bill, you're funding this. I know for a fact that the way the program worked in Houston, and, and it might work the same in other places, is that the fluoride fund, which at one point was $5 million, a million dollars a year being paid by Houstonians to add this toxic uh, waste into the water, that, that, that money comes actually directly from paying your water bill. So in the city of Houston, when you're paying your water bill, the funds from that go directly to the fluoride fund. So you're literally paying to add this to your water and for a alleged medical reason, whether you want it or not, whether you ever drink the water or not. Right. And what, you know, obviously you're, unless you put in a shower filter, you're probably showering in it. Um, so it, it is, I think there's like that bigger question of um, kind of bodily autonomy and choice and should the government or any federal agency be able to medicate the water for an alleged positive benefit. Right. Well, considering, you know, they just pushed this experimental jab on the population. I don't know if they really are super concerned uh, about forcibly medicating us. Um, but at the same time, I think that certainly raises a philosophical question, you know, if what it's if it's morally correct. And I think most of us, you know, who still have a brain left in our head would probably say no. Uh, and, you know, I, it's actually kind of reassuring to hear, I know you mentioned the judge has seems um, somewhat unbiased in this, um, this, this case, which that's a huge relief. That was actually one of the things I wanted to ask was kind of like the vibe in the courtroom. Maybe we'll get to that at some point. But um, so, yeah, that's, that's certainly a benefit. And man, it's 80 years of this stuff, huh? They've been pumping it into our waters. I, I, I can't believe that. It made me shake my head when you said that, Derek. And, you know, I, I think it was nearly 10 years ago that we covered an InfoWars report of a study pub published in Harvard's The Lancet, which claimed that researchers from Harvard School of Public Health said that the fluoridated water is adding to higher incidence of both cognitive and behavioral disorders. Uh, beyond that, Harvard already published a study in 2006 that pointed to fluoride as a developmental neurotoxin. And uh, it obstructs brain development. It could cause, you know, full spectrum of other health issues from autism, dyslexia, uh, ADHD, ADD, a bunch more. The study itself called the effects from this chemical a silent epidemic uh, that the mainstream and many scientific papers have ignored. And that was back in 2006. So I know we, we talked about the media and, you know, perhaps there's a bunch of other topics that are a little more sexy, a little more appealing for the clicks and views and stuff. But why do you think there has been so much suppression and so little concern from this large segment of the population that believes that the substance is actually still beneficial? 
Well, and you mentioned the the 2006 support. That was the National Research Council was involved in that. They're part of uh, what's now called NASM, was previously known as National Academy of Sciences. And like you said, that's 2006. It's almost 20 years ago. Um, and as part of this lawsuit, the the plaintiffs, the Floyd Action Network, they actually had Dr. Kathleen Thiessen. She was one of the witnesses testifying uh, yesterday. She just wrapped up. She's a senior scientist there, and she was involved in that 2006 report. So she was there kind of speaking on her expert testimony of, you know, having experience in this area. And, and the unfortunate reality that I've come to the conclusion of, because I know that, Matt, you said, and I know, Jason, both you guys versed in this topic, and we've all known about this for years. Fluoride, I'll mention fluoride was actually one of the first things I started researching when I first woke up in 2010, 2009, 2010. You guys might remember at that time. Old Infowars had these uh, posters out that there's floor, there's poison in the tap water. And uh, I, I started seeing yeah, those. Yeah. And that was like one of the first things I really dove into. And, I, you know, I did my research just enough to kind of convince myself, all right, I never want to drink this stuff again. Let me start making some steps. And then I actually started printing out those there's poison in the tap water um, posters and putting them up around my neighborhood and somebody started tearing them down. And it kind of, that was like the first form of activism I ever did was just going and putting up these little posters. And the fact that somebody was tearing them down just kind of encouraged me even more to keep going. But so this topic is something that I care very deeply about, just like you guys. And, and, and just kind of on a personal note, it, it feels good to sort of have come from that in 2010 to 14 years later, be here as a journalist reporting on this federal court case, you know, it, it's a big thing. And, and of course, it's kind of like in, in one way, maybe you guys can relate to this too. It's sort of like, you know, a middle finger to all the people who were calling me crazy at the beginning of when I was trying to tell people about this. I'm, you know, there, as we know, that's such a taboo topic for so many people. Um, but I think that really the bigger picture here is that we know, as you said, Jason, like we, we already know that the government believes that they own our bodies, that they, for the most part, don't value bodily autonomy. Maybe this specific judge will. Um, they, they don't really seem to care too much about excusing um, criminal behavior and excusing um, people being exposed to harmful chemicals and harmful toxins. We know that. And as I was starting to say a moment ago, this 2006 study is one of the big ones. But we, we actually have data going back so far back that it is becoming, I think, nearly impossible to deny that elements of the U.S. government have knowingly been poisoning the people. And I know that's not going to be breaking new ground for a lot of people, but it's one thing to sort of believe that. It's a whole other thing to have it in evidence. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're getting these groundbreaking new information. We'll talk in a moment about the National Toxicology Program study on, on IQ, which has been like a big centerpiece of this lawsuit. And that's groundbreaking information. Higher, associate, higher fluoride exposure lowers IQ in children. The scientists couldn't be more clear. But the sad part is that we've known about this. You can look at the 2006 study. So going back almost 20 years, they were talking about IQ. You can go back to the 90s. You can look up a scientist named William Marcus, who was a whistleblower uh, at the EPA, I believe. And he was actually getting mainstream coverage um, from the Washington Post at the time. There's him. There's a few other different scientists that I, I've got. Um, I've got a series of videos I'm going to work on after this trial called the Fluoride Whistleblowers, which is going to kind of highlight some of these um, these histories that have been kept from us. Uh, so there's uh, Marcus, there's another guy at uh, a Harvard professor who was also being investigated and was later cleared. And this was making mainstream. I'm looking right now at mainstream articles from NBC News back in the 2000s talking about this Harvard scientist who's trying to 
speak out about the dangers of fluoride and he's being attacked. This is 2005. So the data has been out there. And I think that is what's one of the most frustrating things. And to that point, I interviewed um, Dr. Philippe Grandjean, who's what was the the third expert witness who came here from Denmark. He's his work is literally the leading work on mercury. The EPA developed their standards on toxicity of mercury based on this scientist's research. And he's here talking about fluoride and the harms of it. And he even points to the fact that there's a scientist in the 1930s in Denmark, his name's Kai Roham, who I, again, I just learned about him in the last two weeks, who he was one of the first people in the 1930s to study the impacts of fluoride. He went to Greenland where there's these mines for this mineral called cryolite. And part of the cryolite mining process, apparently fluoride is, is released or is a byproduct of that. And so he goes and he studies all these mining workers. He does x-rays, he does physical examinations, he takes testimonials from them. And he's the first person in a book in 1937 to document skeletal fluorosis. And you know, um, just showing the impact of fluoride specifically on the bones is what he was mainly looking at, but there was other impacts. And so I say all that to say that I think that's what's most disturbing to me is that the data is there. It's been there for almost 100 years. And I can't, you, you're never going to see me, or at least I don't want to say never, but at the moment, I'm not prepared to write an article and put my name on it or a video on it saying, they're trying to poison us, dumb us down purposely with fluoride. And that's like a, a big meme kind of in the community. And there's all this speculation about if the Nazis, or the communists used it. I, I typically don't go to those areas because I don't right. think there's strong enough evidence. We've got scientific evidence that it causes harm. We can't prove motive. We can't prove it at the moment. But it is becoming increasingly difficult to, to not argue that when you just realize how much data there really is available and that the data is not new either. I mean, that's what's so frustrating is like all the... Like we're never going to know what we could have been, the three of us here, if we had been exposed, we've been exposed to fluoride in different ways, or what the various children who have been exposed to it. You know, I know you guys got kids, and we all know other people who've got kids and families, and pregnant mothers are still being exposed to this. And and I can go over the evidence that was discussed in a moment of how the fluoride intake increases as the mother's pregnancy uh, progresses because she's just going to naturally be drinking more water and needing more resources for the baby. And if she's drinking and consuming fluoridated foods, all that is going straight into the placenta, passing the blood-brain barrier. And so it's just, I'm just astounded by like the I'm kind of like feeling like a renewed vigor for fighting the fluoride fight because of this, because like I said, I knew about this years ago. I kind of put it on the side and I've just been living my life fluoride free. But now because of this trial, I just feel like, man, I just, I'm hoping the judge does the right thing. But even if he doesn't, it feels like there's so much, you know, information that I want to get in front of more people. And, and that's why I guess for me, it's most frustrating that there's not more coverage just for the simple fact that, Hey, I don't care about Derek bros getting, you know, patted on the back for being here. I care about the mothers and the kids and people who don't know about this information and are still consuming this poison. Yeah, <laughs> man. Th- so I was, I've been following this uh, since last week on, uh, on fans, um, Facebook, I mean, not Facebook, sorry, uh, website. And apparently during the, like the EPA's presentation of some of the studies, they, they, they cited a study that the, the government conducted that showed the fluoride actually increased IQ. Oh yeah, <laughs> by by twenty four points, uh, 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 according to this. Yeah, and then they got slammed <laughs> in there, right? By a uh, by a, a Danish. Well, uh, yeah, it's Dr. Granjing. Yeah, haven't fully gone into that yet. They're gonna be so. I'm sorry to cut you off, Matt. There, the, I, I, the, so we haven't fully got into that yet. They have mentioned it, and yeah, everybody who's heard about it is just like. 
they not only are they trying to argue that this study it's um it's you know they usually call studies by the last name of the lead author so they'll say smith 2019 or till 2018 or whatever so this is ibar lisa 2023 this is a, a spanish study uh a, a study in spain in the basque country uh very specific regions studying people's exposure to fluoride over there and yeah apparently their results show that fluoride increases iq by 25 points so there's nothing to worry about guys um, and it's just such an astounding conclusion that I'm really excited uh, in terms of just like the journalistic side of it to hear more about that. So yesterday, Wednesday, uh, as we're recording this, the Fluoride Action Network actually officially rested their case. Since last Wednesday, when I, I've been here since Tuesday, Wednesday, the trial started Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of last week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week. And over those six days, the Fluoride Action Network presented their, their five witnesses, including the ones I mentioned. Um, and then they rested their case yesterday. They officially said, like, we're done. We've said everything, which is a big moment because it's like, all right, I hope we got it all in there. I hope we said everything we need to say. And they, they wrapped their case. And then now the, the uh, EPA has officially begun presenting their witnesses. And so they, they started with their first witness, Dr. David Savitz, yesterday. Today, as we're recording this, is Thursday. We're off. The court's off today. It'll resume tomorrow, Friday. And then Monday and Tuesday are the final days. So over those next two, three days, the EPA is now going to present their witnesses. And one of their witnesses is the lead author, Ibar Liza, of this study. He's unfortunately not pre not presenting um, in person and live. Uh, he's presenting in a, a pre-recorded deposition that the, the court is allowing. And there's some interesting pieces of that I can talk about in a moment because he actually was caught lying under oath, and that's why he's not testifying in person. But his study... Um, his study is claiming that, uh, yeah, that fluoride actually increases IQ by 25 points. And, you know, this is the this is the position of the government. I think their goal here and probably the goal of any uh, anybody in their position is to try to muddy the waters as much as possible. They want to confuse the hell out of the judge. I mean, I think the fluoride action at work, Michael Conant, he's an amazing attorney. They've done just a wonderful job the last five, uh, six days presenting their evidence and like I said, the judge is listening. He's asking questions. Sometimes he's shutting down the government. And whenever they try to, you know, object and this and that, he's, he's clearly interested in trying to get all the facts. Um, and now it's the government's turn. But the whole time that the Florida Action Network was presenting their witnesses, when the government would cross-examine, their, their attorneys, of course, they would just come in and try to, again, muddy the waters, just try to confuse the judge and say, okay, well, if this study says fluoride does this and lowers IQ, well, let's go in here and talk and get into the minutia of the, um, you know, of, of how we got to that point. And not to say that doesn't matter, because obviously if the science isn't good, then you need to explain that to the judge and help him show like this study is shit. It's not good one way or the other. The government's not really able to do that because these studies are pretty solid. So instead, they're either trying to, you know, do some impeachment of the witnesses and make them look like they're not credible or just spend time confusing the judge and the judge has had to say several times like hold on hold on you lost me now i need to like go back and or other times where the judge has just straight up like the one or two times that he's raised his voice at all and got a little frustrated was directly at the government and said you know what is this line of questioning about move on come on you're wasting everybody's time and just sort of admonishing them for some of the lines of questioning they're getting into so we're going to hear from ibar liza during his presentation and the unfortunate thing that i was told by uh the team at Fluoride Action Network is that they can't really say anything. Like once it's time for him to be for that witness to be called, basically they just press play and they let him say whatever he's going to say. 
you know, they can't interrupt the tape and say, your honor, he's saying something wrong about, you know, like the usual process when there's a live witness there, or even if it's a Zoom witness, this is a pre-recorded testimony. And so they're not allowed to get into some of the finer points. And as I mentioned, um, I wrote an article last week before the trial began and Fluoride Action Network, as part of this lawsuit, some of the biggest bombshells have come because Michael Conant and their team, they've been filing open records requests, Freedom of Information Act requests, and they've gotten all kinds of emails from the CDC, from the, uh, uh, the um, National Toxicology Program, from uh, California dental directors, and just from different areas. And one of the, the emails that they recently received and that, that I reported on shows that Dr. Ibarliza lied under oath uh, about his study. He, uh, he was asked under deposition by Fluoride Action Network, has anybody ever asked you to delete any information related to your study? And he said, never, 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 never. That's never happened. And then through these loss, through these emails that they obtained, they actually did, you know, did a FOIA and there's an email that is directed to him. The entire email is redacted except for the last line of the email says, please delete this message. And that's the only line that you can see. And so because of that, yeah, because of that, he has actually been, um, his testimony has changed. So like, they're going to allow him to do this pre-recorded testimony, but he, he he's not in person. And, and I, I think it's because he, they knew if they brought him in person, he would be questioned and cross-examined and we could get into the finer points of that. And then one other thing I'll mention about the emails that that is kind of part of the bigger issue is that the judge has unfortunately ruled that some of the other emails that were obtained by the Fluoride Action Network, and these emails came out last year, I reported on this for T-Lab and at the Conscious Resistance. These emails, again, involve members of the CDC's oral health division and uh, members of other agencies, Health and Human Services, uh, Assistant Secretary of Health, Rachel slash Richard Levine. Um, these emails specifically show that that and they had mentioned Rachel Levine that Rachel Levine blocked the release of this report from the National Toxicology Program, which the scientists themselves say was ready to go and ready for publication in May 2022. And um, basically, the report has never come out in its final form. The the government was forced to release the draft version because of this lawsuit. But unfortunately, they can still say, "Oh, that's just the draft version. That's not the final conclusions." But the, the draft version in there, the scientists at the National Toxicology Program, which is the branch of the government that is the experts who study toxicology uh, and, and environmental epidemiology, said clearly higher fluoride exposure is associated with lower IQ in children. And that is just you know so clear and direct. And that is what the government has been fighting to keep out. So I say all that to say that as these emails have been coming out and Michael Conant and them have been getting them, I've been trying to do my job as a journalist to report on it. But unfortunately, they had to strike a deal with the, the court and the judge that they couldn't mention any of that political interference in the trial. So none of that can be brought up. So, for example, whenever they're trying to argue about why the NTP study is so strong and then the government comes in and says, yeah, but look, these other researchers said it's weak. Michael Connick can't say, well, let's look at this email where that scientist was behind the scenes saying this study is not going to come out. So basically, we can't get into any of the political intervention, any of the kind of mechanics, which is sad to me because, yeah, it's about the science. But how can you talk about the science if you can't talk about the corruption of science? You know what I mean? Like it, it, it kind of just takes away some of their legs. Right. Still, Michael Connett's doing an amazing job, but that's just one kind of unfortunate aspect of this. And I didn't know if I said this, but the first phase of the trial was in 2020. 
and we had about a week and a half of testimony. And then the judge put it on hold because he was waiting to see that National Toxicology Program report. And so he said, look, let's wait till we get all the science out before I make a ruling. And then, of course, several years passed and the data still didn't come out. And that's when Michael Conant, he told me in our interview that uh, he had a source tell him, hey, there's some there's some screwy stuff happening on. You need to file open records requests so you can get the real truth. And he was able to find out what was going on and bring that to the judge. And ultimately, the judge relented and said, OK, let's restart the trial. Let's start the second phase. We'll talk about the National Toxicology Program draft report. We'll give it the weight that it deserves. But we can't get into any of the political stuff, any of this interference that appears to have been happening behind the scenes. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Right. Like there's th these people sound like they're, they're the way you just described. It sounds like they're actively attempting to cover up oh, they known are. harms to, to American citizens. I mean, like there's like like Jason said earlier, you know, 2006 was this Harvard, this Harvard collection of studies. And since then, there's been dozens and dozens more. There's you know, we've probably on the Free Thought Project probably reported on close to 200 of these different studies uh, showing the harmful effects of fluoride in drinking water and fl ingesting fluoride like. I know, like you said earlier, and I agree, like, I, I, you know, you can go back to IG Farben and, and look at the, the history of fluoride and, and uh, when it was used, you know, and to control the population and stuff. But not even to get into conspiracy theory realm, what logic or possible reason could the EPA be using to 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 fight this battle? Like what how on earth are they OK with ignoring all of these studies and all of this information that shows how harmful fluoride is, and they're fighting for it. I, I just don't understand that. What is the? Are, are have you seen any of their reasoning in this in the trial so far as to how they think that this is a good idea to continue to do this? Well, it's making us smarter, man. The, the EPA's <laughs> attorneys are um, are are arguing that basically that the science isn't strong enough. That's kind of like they this. I'll say this: one major step that we have seen is that they have acknowledged, and I believe this is the first time through this trial. That the government is at least acknowledging, yes, fluoride is a neurotoxin. They're admitting that, but they're arguing that it's only at the higher levels. And they keep saying, well, at the U.S. Uh, uh, US recommended uh, dosage for fluoridated communities is 0.7 milligrams per liter. And, uh, you know, you're looking at studies that are above and beyond that. So, yes, we can see there's clearly an association at the higher levels, but that's not relevant to what we're doing in the U.S. So, you know, let, let's not pay attention to that. That's one argument they're making. The other arguments they're making are, like I said a couple of moments ago, they're just trying to like pick at the different nuances. And again, sometimes I will admit there have been times, and this is all in my reporting in my, my live tweets, which I just posted some really convenient um, uh, from Threadreader, that app, so you can read through all my tweets a lot easier, like articles at theconsciousresistance.com. There are a few points where um, the, the EPA is doing, their lawyers are good too. They, they've got good young attorneys who I just cannot understand why they would be in the position they are. But nevertheless, they are uh, doing their job to pe poke holes in the Fluoride Action Network's expert witnesses. They're getting them to admit, okay, well, this study that you, that doesn't show as high of an association of fluoride exposure and lower IQ, it's a credible study, right? It's a good study. And, and you know, the scientists are being, they're, they're under oath, so they're being real. And they're saying, yeah, that's a quality study. I don't think it's complete. They're adding caveats, but still, like, you know, the, the EPA is doing their job to try to paint that doubt in the judge's mind so that he doesn't feel confident to make a ruling. But they are at this point now admitting that fluoride is a neurotoxin. They're just arguing that it's only at levels higher. And of course, one of the, one of the um, 
important things. I'm getting like a freaking like a, a, a quick paced education on how to do toxic uh, hazard assessment and, and risk assessment for the EPA this last week here. But one of the major things that the Fluoride Action Network has done a great job showing is that in the past, when the EPA has regulated things like lead and mercury, they don't like they don't just wait till they can find a study that says, okay, lead is toxic at X, Y, and Z level. And then we have to see people exposed to that levels before we act on it. No, what they've done and what the Fluoride Action Network scientists are showing, because two of their expert witnesses, Dr. Bruce Lanfury, he's done amazing work on lead. Dr. Philip Grangine, he's one of the lead experts on mercury. And Dr. Kathleen Thiessen, she was involved in that 2006 report. So they got some real heavy hitters here. And they're showing that, look, in the past, the EPA hasn't waited till that point for mercury or for lead or for any other toxin. There's something called the uncertainty factor that they're supposed to basically apply an uncertainty factor of 10. So if you can find harm or a risk at this level, let's say it's a quote unquote lower level, you still are supposed to assume an uncertainty factor of 10 times that amount so that you are considering the most vulnerable populations, people who have kidney illnesses, who in this case can't detox from fluoride as simple as the rest of us, or it'll build up faster for them pregnant mothers, obviously, these different risk groups. You're not just supposed to consider the average healthy person and like, okay, well, they're being exposed to a little fluoride, they'll be fine. You, you're supposed to do this uncertainty factor, you consider the most at risk groups, and then you act. And the EPA has done that in every other instance prior to this. They haven't waited till they had, like with lead, uh, one of the uh, witnesses was even saying like, look, we still don't even know the mechanism that causes lead to lower IQ and to have all these negative health problems. But we acted anyways. You don't need to wait till you can point to a study that says this is the exact mechanism that we know how this chemical or this toxin is doing all these different things. You, can, you so the I mean it, it does seem like the uh, the evidence and the history is, is on Fluoride Action Network side in terms of how the EPA has handled previous toxins and uh, risk assessments. No doubt, and the dosing is completely arbitrary, right? Like. This shit's dumped in a water supply and then piped to people's houses. And to 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 think that people only get 0.7 micrograms of fluoride, that it would mean that they all drink the exact same amount of water. They don't have it reduced, you know. Like if you boil down the water and then, uh, you know, and then ingest that water, it just it simply it concentrates it's even more. Or if somebody drinks a lot more water, right? Like the the dosing can completely be uh, is a variable rate. So even concentrating on that 0.7 micrograms is just it's it's also irrelevant you know and yeah and that's that's one of the things that michael connor has tried to bring up a lot of the studies that they've been um highlighting have to do with measuring uh what's called urinary fluoride levels so basically they're testing the moms or the the yeah the mom's um pee at different intervals over over uh, various periods of time and they're finding like hey look they're consuming fluoride and we're seeing it in their urine you know months or maybe even years down the line uh, we're seeing it in the babies. We're seeing it the way it's impacting. So it's it's not just about what's in the water. Now the government's trying to make it focused on that, so they can sort of argue what you were saying there, Matt. They can try to just say, well, look, people are only being exposed at 0.7, and all these studies are dealing with 1.5 milligrams per liter. But the reality is, as the uh, expert witnesses on the plaintiff side have been arguing, is that you have this this total exposure. You've got if you're eating processed foods. 
if you're, um, you know, all of us are being exposed to pesticides to some degree or another, whether you live near or on a farm, just because of how heavily sprayed the United States is. And some of those pesticides contain fluorides uh, in, in them. And there's also, again, the processed foods, the canned goods, there's the showers you're taking, there's the coffee you're making. If, as you mentioned, Matt, if you're cooking your food in it, you're increasing the concentration of fluoride in it. So there's a, there's a number of different exposures that have to do with diet and so many other factors. And the EPA is trying to do their best to kind of let's ignore all that. Let's just look at the fluoride concentration in the water and then argue from that point. And so that's, there's been a lot of like dancing around that, that point from both sides. Like, look, you're talking about just the 0.7 and you're saying, okay, we don't have enough data to show conclusively that at these quote unquote lower levels, it's causing harm. But the, the evidence is showing other, otherwise because they have been including studies that are at 0.7 and lower, and there's still harm. It's just that the government is trying to, again, plant doubt, uh, plant doubt in the judge's mind and say, yeah, those studies are less credible. Let's look at this study that said fluoride increases IQ by 25 points instead. <laughs> uh, and, and there's been some pretty powerful quotes. I'm actually working on a new article as soon as we wrap up here for the last American Vagabond that will come out. Um, by the time this podcast is out, if anybody wants to catch up on just some uh, a deeper summary of what each of the witnesses said. And there has been some some pretty direct points where I think it was Dr. Grandjean just when he was asked about that uh, study that they said increased IQ by 25 points, where he was just like, it makes no sense. It's not correct. You know, just he didn't mince his words at all. He's just like, there's no reason that they should have found that conclusion. It doesn't align with any of the other available data, even if you were to try to argue oh, look, our study didn't find any harm, but to argue that it found the exact opposite, which again, could be done on purpose to just make the judge look at the data and be like, wow, it's such diverse findings. How can I really rule one way or the other? Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned uh, that fluoride you know, is able to enter our bodies in different ways. In fact, I was going to mention that. I, I just want to mention to our audience, you know, there are uh, filters that you could buy. I know Berkey sells one uh, that uh, filters out the fluoride. So you could put that on your shower and hopefully, you know, you're absorbing a little less fluoride. But the fact that they're saying that, you know, it, it it's all due to uh, how much we're actually ingesting, that seems a little crazy to me. I mean, that, you know, we could say the same thing, like, well, just a little toxin is fine, you know, or just a little cancer. Hey, that's great for you. Um, so that, it's definitely a, a strange justification, but it doesn't surprise me. And the fact that this Dr. Ibiza or Ibar, Ibariza, how do you, I'm not sure how you say his name, but uh, the fact that he's not even disqualified, even though he's been caught lying and how he's still even being considered as legitimate is, is beyond me. But then again, you know, I guess I'm not surprised. But um, I, I did want to get into um, your conversation with Dr. Philip Grandjean, because one of the segments I caught from uh, The Last American Vagabond shined a light on the interview you did with him, uh, you know, he, just for a little context, guys, uh, he's a physician, ex-Harvard professor and a chair of environmental medicine for the University of Southern Denmark. And uh, yeah, he confirmed in his studies and he found that uh, every milligram that children ingest of fluoride, it lowers their IQ by two points, which is, you know, absolutely astonishing to me, especially when you consider like how much fluoride products are marketed towards kids. And uh, that wasn't the only part that he divulged to you as well. When you spoke to me about this interview, you mentioned that he was nervous about his participation in the interview with you. And uh, after you finished 
he was apprehensive about you even recording it. And you mentioned that he said that some of the people at Harvard were going to be mad at him, you know, which I noted is basically you're doing your job correctly as a journalist and you probably had just struck gold. But can you speak a little bit to this interview and what he shared with you about his uncertainty of uh, participation afterward? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I don't think I've mentioned this to anybody else. So um, I'm just giving it to you guys. He, he told me, as you mentioned, there's two important points. I mean, he said a lot of different things. He talked about IQ. He, again, this is the expert in Mercury who helped. It's his work that helped uh, the EPA use to develop their standards on uh, mercury toxicity. So, again, not just some random dude who, whose opinion hasn't been valued by anybody. His opinion has been used and valued by the U.S. government many times over. And that has led him to places like Harvard. It's led him to places like the World Health Organization, where he gets invited in to you know do his work and in his view what he was telling me is kind of a little bit he didn't say this on the recording but he seemed to believe that they that often scientists like him will get invited to things like this so that they can use their credentials to add credibility to their schemes right so in this case he, he described two instances to me one was at harvard where um he was doing research on fluoride and this was research that was permitted. And, you know, he's also kind of, I think he's got tenure, so he can pretty much do whatever the heck he wants. But I'm going to read the exact quote to you guys, because I don't want to misquote him. He said, quote, a professor from Harvard University came to my office and asked me to sign a statement that my work on fluoride has nothing to do with fluoridation. So this is after he's already drawing conclusions about fluoride and IQ. And he says, quote, he actually wrote this draft. I still have it in my possession. And since I didn't sign this immediately, he instead went to my dean, had the dean sign a statement that he supported water fluoridation in accordance with the CDC, and I was told by the leadership at Harvard that my research on fluoride was unwanted and had never been approved by Harvard. And because we couldn't agree on what I would consider academic freedom, I left Harvard. Wow. Yeah, so that alone to me is like, you know, why is that not being put out there? Like, here's a Harvard, you know, this, again, all this credentials and expert and yada yada, trust the science, and here's one of the scientists trying to speak to us about this corruption and he you know so to what you were asking jason after we did wrap our interview he stood there just kind of like in a daze almost he was just deep in thought i could tell and he, <laughs> he, he's like just standing there and he asked me he's like where is this going to go out on like where do you publish stuff and i told him i said well i've got my website social media you know it's the internet so everywhere i'm gonna put this everywhere and he's like he kind of hesitated. Like he didn't tell me don't release this. And I would have respected that if he kind of on second thought was like, Hey, can you cut that Harvard part or something like that? And I even did reach out to him before I published it. Uh, I think he had already made his way back to Denmark, but I did call him afterwards just to give him a chance before we published to back out, which was just me being nice. You know, I, I don't think I, you know, I, I, he, he knew it was on the record, let's say, but still I was trying to be kind to him. I wasn't able to get in touch with him. So I went ahead and released it. But when he, stood there he kind of seemed to be second guessing it, and he just said something to the effect that people at harvard are going to be mad at me uh, about this and i said well i won't make it the headline i guess you know or something even though right away i knew i was like oh my god that was a that was a pretty powerful story you just told me there um so he did seem concerned about it but i think at this point he he does have tenure and he's such a credentialed scientist that there's not a whole lot they can do to him yeah. other than maybe trying to tarnish his career but I mean, they can't really harm him too much. He's already established, basically. Right, right. Man, that's one of the biggest bombshells I've heard in regard to all this. Like that, 
the that Harvard tried to go suppress this this man from studying fluoride. That's that's insanity, dude. I mean, I guess with all the recent revelations coming out of Harvard in the last month or so, I guess it shouldn't be that surprising, but it, yeah, it, it still is, you know. So, man, I know I've got one more. I've got one more. I got one more revelation that I think is worth sharing. If I could, real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was the second thing he told me. I don't know if you were going to get into this or not, Jason, but I think it's worth mentioning. He also told me a story about the World Health Organization. And uh, again, the full interviews, you can find them at theconsciousresistance.com and lastamericanvagabond.com. These clips that I'm discussing here, the Harvard and the World Health Organization story, those are both clipped individually on my Twitter page if anybody wants to go find those and share those. But so he also told me a story about him being invited to the World Health Organization. And again, I'm going to quote from him directly so I don't misspeak for him. This is what he told me. He said, the WHO asked me to help them develop what they called an environmental health criteria document on fluoride. So I drafted that document that reviewed the sources of fluoride in the environment, including drinking water, the animal data, and the epidemiology. And they inserted changes in my draft indicating that fluoride could perhaps be toxic, but only at immense concentrations. I protested and said that in accordance with the scientific documentation, it would be wrong to insert the word immense. And so the WHO published a document without my name because I'd asked to have my name stricken, but they inserted some other colleague's name as the author of the draft, which is, of course, erroneous. But that was what the WHO felt was necessary in order to protect the interests of water fluoridation. And the reason I asked him about this is because in the 2020 first phase of this trial, he had testified um, that he had been that the fluoride lobby had infiltrated the WHO, but that's all he said. He didn't really kind of explain it. And so this whole past four years, I've just been like, well, somebody get him to elaborate on that. And so finally I had a chance to ask him, like, could you explain what you mean by the fluoride lobby? And that's the story he told me. And so thus we're at a position where the, the WHO continues to recommend water fluoridation. Are there any other clear actors within the fluoride lobby that you're aware of, or you could name? Um, I mean, he. Uh, I asked Dr. Granjean and uh, Michael Conant, the lead attorney, about this, and they were both, I think, careful with their words. Besides what we just see here, there's obviously there's academic influences like Harvard. Uh, there's the WHO, um, and then you know more historically, you can look at Alcoa, the aluminum phosphate mining industry. They're still a big part of this because they're the source of the hydrofluorosilicic acid that is put in the water. So I, I'm, I'm sure those interests are still a part of this. But the other major one is, of course, the dental lobby. You know, the, the uh, American Dental Association, um, the CDC's oral health division, they were listed in those emails I was mentioning earlier as worrying about the study coming out. And uh, there are pro-fluoridation groups that are connected to the dental lobby that literally show up. Like if you're in a small town, it doesn't matter if there's 10,000 people or less, and you're trying to fight fluoride, they will hear about it. They will send an, a quote-unquote expert to try to debunk you. Like they, they keep tabs on these movements. And they try to write hit pieces on the, the scientists and the people who are speaking out about it. Um, and what I've essentially come to realize this last uh, week, nine days here at the at the second phase of this trial, is that what we're what we're having is what we're seeing is a, a kind of a battle between different scientists, different fields of science. Obviously, science we know that that's a big it's a big field. There's so many different things under that, and we're being told to trust the science, trust the experts, otherwise we're quote-unquote anti-science. But in this situation, you clearly have an example of two different fields, or at least two different sectors of fields, who have different opinions. You have the dental health 
dental researchers who are all heavily pro-fluoride because obviously it's tied to their dental work. And then you have most of these researchers, like the ones I've been mentioning today that are testifying in the trial, that are coming from uh, an environmental toxicity background, that are coming from environmental epidemiology, and they're the and from neurotoxicity and st studying neurodevelopment. And those are the ones that are trying to ring the alarm bells about this. But then you've got the dental health interests and those who are tied to that who are trying to downplay it. So, you know, I asked a couple of the scientists about this, like, you know, what are we as quote unquote lay regular people who, you know, aren't scientists? How are we supposed to navigate this situation when we're being told to trust the science on one hand, and at the same time, we do see that there are good scientists like these ones here we're speaking about who are speaking out publicly about their uh, experiences with corruption, but they're also being demonized by other scientists and, and just, you know, how, do, how are we supposed to navigate that? I, I don't think it's an easy, simple situation. Of course, the answer is to just be skeptical and not trust you know anybody just because they got a lab coat or they got a degree or they scientist of this or that thing. But it is an increasingly complex situation that I think is going to be more difficult for those of us who care about free thought and, um, and liberty. Absolutely, my friend. And yeah, I, I could kind of co-sign to a certain extent on what you were saying. My mom has been a dental hygienist for over 30 years. And I could tell you firsthand, yeah, that the, the programming and indoctrination in the dental community goes deep. It's, it's hard to, to wrap your head around it. And my heart goes out to anybody who took those little fluoride pills when uh, they were little kids. I don't know if they're still giving those things out, but uh, I can only imagine the damage that that did. All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing the end. We wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Free Thought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work having these important conversations and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. Thank you for your support, Freethinkers, and as always, thank you for listening. We are getting close to the wrap point here. I did have one last question, and we don't have to spend too much time on it, but it feels important to kind of wrap up this whole uh, conversation that we've been having. So with you know only three days left, what do you anticipate could be like the broader implications of this lawsuit's outcome, both legally and terms of like public health policies and how do you see the outcome of this lawsuit potentially impacting communities that have been affected by water fluoridation? Well, thank you. For, thank you guys for both having me on. I appreciate it, first of all, because as we were saying, there's not enough media coverage of that of this. So I appreciate any and everybody who gives it the time it deserves. Um, so the best case scenario is that next week. Judge Chen, after things wrap up, he's not going to rule on you know the, the final day. It's more than likely going to take days, maybe even weeks for him to come to his conclusion, uh, and which is probably better because there's a lot of science, there's a lot to digest, and, and you do want him to sit back and, and really look at everything and, and, and before he makes his decision. But if the judge was to find that fluoride is a neurotoxin, basically what would happen 
is that there will probably be appeals. So the EPA, the government will probably appeal that, and that'll take who knows how long. And if it survived an appeal and it stood up that this judge has ruled fluoride as a neurotoxin under the Toxic Substance Control Act, the EPA would be required to take one of several steps. And obviously, the, the one we would want the most would just be to ban fluoride altogether from the water. Uh, but they could lower it. They could do all kinds of things. As, essentially, what Michael Conant told me is there will be a working group established by the EPA. How long does that process take? Who the heck knows? I mean, so unfortunately, it's not like water fluoridation is going to be over next week uh, for the masses. It still is probably going to be years of legal battles and surviving those legal battles and making it through the EPA's working group. But at the very least, if the judge does rule the way we think he should, it will give people like us one more bit of information to take to our dental hygienist uh, relatives and say, look, did you see this? A federal court has now ruled that fluoride is a neurotoxin and they're in the process of, you know, figuring out what's next. And, you know, just one more kind of, I guess, talking point and piece of data to use to people who think and act like we're crazy, unfortunately. And if it doesn't go that way, then the EPA will and all the pro-fluoridation lobby will have one more piece of data for them to say, look, a federal court found that fluoride isn't a neurotoxin. Or the court found that, yes, it's a neurotoxin, but it's at all these really high levels, and that's not what we're doing. So it's not relevant to our discussion. And unfortunately, the practice would probably continue for another whoever knows how long until until there's some other way to try to fight this. You know, maybe we regroup and we focus on the local level, um, but that's been very difficult up to this point. So this is a major inflection point, I think, as it relates to individual liberty, bodily autonomy. Should the government be medicating our water? Why is the government putting a toxin in that we know is lowering IQ and harming children? And why are we still allowing this? And of course, as was discussed in the trial several times, the people of lower economic, socioeconomic status are going to be the ones who are always impacted the most. People who can't afford to uh, buy shower filters or house filters or to, uh, you know, go buy a bunch of five gallon jugs and, and, and fill those up every couple days or so. It's going to be the poorest among us who will be impacted the most as things usually are. And uh, I really hope that that's not what we see, but that's kind of the two options in front of us at the moment. There is a, a quote that I stumbled upon this morning that I, I feel like uh, sums up this whole thing very well. And it, it's pretty short. It's however much you deny the truth, the truth goes on existing. So um, hopefully we do finally get to the truth. And you made a great point. How many years more is it going to take, you know, after the appeals and everything? Like how many more people are going to be affected by this neurotoxin? Hopefully, um, you know, we can limit that in a short period of time. But uh, wrapping up here, I know hotels in San Francisco are not cheap, guys. So please donate to Derek's coverage. And um, this is so important. You know, you could go to the last American Vagabond and at the top of the site there, there's a donate tab. Let's help Derek's commitment to the truth and get this coverage out. So definitely donate, guys. And uh, I don't know if you're still with us, Derek, but I know we mentioned a few of the outlets um, where your work can be found during the opener of the podcast. But go ahead and tell our audience uh, where you can find your social media posts, you know, what projects or events you're working on. And uh, if you're writing any new books or basically anything you want to plug. I appreciate that. Am I coming through okay? Somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat. <laughs> Record on your end. So yeah. We're going to be okay, I believe. 
Okay, well, I appreciate the time again, guys. Yeah, and anybody who can donate, we have a give, send, go, give, send, go.com slash fluoride trial. Um, as Jason said, it's it's not cheap to be here in San Francisco for two weeks. So uh, any help with that is appreciated. Um, the next big project I'm working on is actually a book about this this whole lawsuit. Um, I'm, I've got a publisher that I'm working with that hopefully I'll be able to talk about soon once this is over and if everything goes well. But that's going to be one of my major goals this year is to write a book putting all this information we've just discussed and even more into print so it won't be lost to the pages of history, whatever way the trial does go. And um, I'm going to be finishing the Pyramid of Power, my series uh, this year, the pyramidofpower.net. People can find that. And uh, just trying to stay on the important stories that matter. You know, my, my, I guess, strategy is not to get caught up in what the mainstream discussion is. There's all kinds of stuff happening in some of it's some of it's important, some of it's relevant. But for me, a lot of it, I think, distracts from uh, uh, issues that we can actually have an impact on. And as big and crazy as this fluoride issue seems, there are things we can do for ourselves. There are things we can do to protect our family and our uh, the kids and the coming generations. So uh, I'm going to try to do what I can to focus on solutions this year, like always, and, and just keep bringing hard hitting journalism. So thank you, guys. Absolutely, man. Thank you. And, you know, we didn't even talk about the Greater Reset 5 at all. We probably could have spent this whole episode talking about that. Here you are on to the next one, you know. So, uh, yeah, we definitely look forward to the the book coming out. And I must say, Derek, you know, we've been friends and colleagues for over a decade now. And, uh, you know, some of us have hit bumps in the road or had life altering events that unfortunately limit our participation in the activism and journalism and, you know, what we do with social media and all that. But it's like you've increased your efforts, like you've doubled down your efforts and widened your workload. And I know you've heard me say this plenty of times before, so I won't belabor the point. But for our audience, just know that this guy is committed to truth. He's committed to integrity, freedom, sovereignty, and he motivates all of us to keep and keeps us all inspired to never stop. So, you know, I, I must say we thank you for that. Derek and uh, we appreciate you spending some time with us today and keep up the excellent work covering the lawsuit in San Francisco thank you guys